To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. So here's what we know. The meeting begins 4 p.m. Washington time. President Biden, the four congressional leaders, McCarthy, McConnell, Schumer, Jeffries. All men this time. Interesting. And it will at least begin in the Oval Office. There will be a press pool spray at the top of the meeting. So a little bit after this thing starts, we'll get at least, a, you know, a fly on the wall view for a couple of minutes. Maybe they make a couple of quick remarks before they kick everybody out of the room. You know, cry. Thank you. Thank you. So at least we'll know it happened, even if nothing comes of it. Now, the latest wrinkle we have here, this is important. Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he is not on board with a short term debt limit deal. Now, maybe that was obvious to everybody, but he tells Reuters that he opposes the idea of raising the ceiling through the end of the fiscal year, September 30th. A lot of people have suggested that happen on this program. And he's speaking through the press, you know, to get into this negotiating session today. Remembering the X date lands as soon as June 1st, as soon as being the key words there. And for those doubting the forecast from the Treasury this week, I will point them to the Bipartisan Policy Center here in Washington out today with an updated forecast we've all been waiting for. And guess what? It looks a lot like Janet Yellen's. And that is where we begin with Bill Hoagland, the senior vice president of the Bipartisan Policy Center. Bill, thanks for coming back. It's not an accident. You and I tend to talk when we're up against an ugly deadline here in Washington. And this one is approaching very quickly. How important, in your view, is this latest statement from Speaker McCarthy? No on a short term deal. Well, I'm a little bit surprised uh, that, Joe, that he's uh, made that statement because I do think we need a compromise here. We are very worried, as you said, we have issued a report this morning that we think that there's real risk here in early June. I don't see how we're going to be able to get a total agreement uh, in terms of working with the Congress and the president before June. And so I think you're going to need some form of a extension just for the purposes mm. of nothing more than just being able to buy some time to work out a bigger deal, which has to happen. There has to be a compromise here. It can't be my way or the highway, either for the president or for Speaker McCarthy. And I think this is important that we make make at least the extension. Now, we could, as you know from our estimates this morning, it's possible there's a risk, a big risk, but there's a possibility that if we could make it to the June uh, second quarter estimated tax payments that we might be able to extend this a little bit further without a default. But I think that the risks are too great that we shouldn't be playing with uh, with uh, this brinkmanship that's going on right now. Yeah. Uh, and I don't I don't see how you're going to be able to get an agreement uh, with um, in, in today, quite frankly. Right. Well, so I, gonna, you know, I tend to think people's expectations are way too high for whatever is going to happen here today. Uh, your oh, yeah. director of economic policy, Bill, writes in this same report, quote, If a solution is not reached before June, policymakers may be playing daily Russian roulette with the full faith and credit of the United States, risking financial disaster for their constituents in the country. Uh, Bill, how do we get that far, though, without a downgrade? Isn't that the the most immediate concern here that that could happen at any moment if Fitch and S&P wake up on the wrong side of the bed? (laughs) Well, it's a good uh, good question. I do. I, I can't say what Fitch and uh, S&P will do. Uh, we do know that back in the 2011 uh, episode that we went through, uh, we were uh, there was a downgrade from S&P. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was af- it was after we reached an agreement, though. Uh, but basically, they were saying what, what we reached was not uh, sufficient to really deal with the long-term fiscal challenges this country faced. So um, uh, that's uh, it's a slightly different downgrade that came about back then. But I do think we are, once again, dealing with the uh, the possibility of a downgrade here. We're already starting to see the market impact on this. We already have seen the impact on some interest rates and short-term interest rates going up. And so this is already starting to cost the federal government in the long term. And um, we should take that into consideration. I hope the leaders um, step back, take a deep breath, and say, listen, 
we are not going to default, and we have to at least work out an agreement here. And it has to be a compromise of some sort. I I respect both sides of the aisle here, mm-hmm. but uh, that's what the, the democratic process is all about. We have different parties in control. We're going to have to find some solution here that uh, compromises. I just uh, it's going to be difficult, and you're going to need time. That's why I think I'm a little surprised that Speaker McCarthy says he's not in for a, a short-term extension. Yeah, and I suppose all of this could change, right? But you know what what is what exactly is he saying on you know the the same day he's meeting with the president? He's playing this through the media uh, a little bit here. Uh, but maybe it's the date that's an issue as opposed to a short-term solution of, of some different duration. I guess I just wonder, Bill, in, in your view, what both sides could come out with calling a win here today. They both need to make this meeting work. It's not going to help anybody to come out and start blaming the other party after this meeting tonight. Yeah, I would, again, I would hope that uh, they could come out of this saying that the United States is going to re- remain Full and uh, faithful to its uh, obligations, uh, and and not uh, jeopardize our economic uh, uh, future here by not uh, uh, reaching some form of an agreement. So they can at least come out of this and say we're going to continue to talk. If that uh, if they come out and say at least we're going to continue to talk, we're not uh, we're not uh, shutting the door on each other on this, but we're going to continue to talk. And uh, that I think is uh, would be the best thing that came out of would come out of today's. Uh, uh, a four o'clock meeting with the four. Uh, if they come out and say they're still locked in, that's my way. I'm not going to. I'm not going to compromise. Then I do fear for what uh, the market, how the market's going to react, because that will definitely uh, complicate our ability uh, to find a solution here in the next uh, next month or so. Uh, before I, we're really worried here about the early June. Yeah. Um, again. I want to make clear that uh, there is a slight possibility we could get beyond uh, that early June if we can get to that uh, second quarter uh, payment, uh, tax payment. Estimated well, I wanted to payment. ask you about that because you've got June 15 circled on your calendar as well. We're going to get another uh, uh, influx there of, of quarterly tax receipts, as you write. If that actually ends up being sufficient on June 15th, does that carry us potentially through the end of June? Or for that, that that definitely carries us to the end of the June, and then if we can get to the end of the June, then there's another opportunity here for uh, extraordinary measures that mm-hmm. have been applied, and we can apply that again, and that would then get us to the end of July. So, uh, but listen, we don't have a lot. This is we got. This a, is a ridiculous uh, conversation that we're having. <laughs> I know, yeah. Right. Uh, we have a Memorial Day recess. We have a Fourth of July recess. We have the president going off on a foreign trip. Uh, we just don't kind <laughs> of time. Uh, to uh, uh, play around with this. We have to get serious about it. And by the way, just yeah. as a, I, I, I had no inside information, but I do know that staffs uh, met on Friday. Yes. Uh, both, both from the, both from Congress and from the White House. Now, mainly, it's mainly was setting up the logistics for who's going to speak first or whatever at the four yes. o'clock meeting. Yep. But, but the fact that staffs are now starting to talk, I think is critical because my experience over the years that I've, Worked in the in the Congress. Uh, I, I'm pretentious. It's made pretentious for me to say this, but it gets down to the staff getting <laughs> down, talking together, yep. and uh, working with their bosses. And I, so I do. There's an op, I'm optimistic that we're not going to uh, default, um, but we may, as we've done in the past in 2011 and previous years, we may go right up to the brink. Right. Uh, uh, and you write economic risks will spike well before the Treasury's account balance reaches zero. Yeah, Explain to our listeners what you mean by that. Well, uh, as we're starting to see in the um, in the uh, uh, short term, uh, one month, uh, four week uh, market, uh, it spiked almost a whole percentage point in the last month, from four point eight to five point eight. That's the highest it's been, uh, I think, ever recorded for this kind of a short term credit. And that's before this. This was before the X date. So what's happening out there is this uh, beginning to get nervous about this and i don't want to get in i'm not a, a financial expert in this regard but in terms of something called credit default uh, market that too has spiked up rather large suggesting that there is the market is starting to take into consideration that we might actually default in which then that's going to clearly have a direct impact upon the equity markets the bond markets out there and uh, more importantly just to get straight to it if we actually yeah. default it then there will be payments that will not be going out 
whether that uh, we can talk about it, whether it's Social Security or Medicare, SNAP benefits, paying for the just paying the interest on the on the bonds that are going to be rolling over. So this is going to have a direct economic impact, and it's going to be uh, as a, we've never it's ever happened, of course, as you know. Yeah. And so we're all dealing with a little bit of uncertainty here, but the uncertainty is really clearly leans on the side that it would not be beneficial for the long term uh, economic future of this country. I can hear it in your voice, Bill. This is this is very real, and I, I can tell you're feeling it. So are there cuts, see, if we take a, a different approach to this, are there mm-hmm. cuts that Speaker McCarthy is asking for that the Bipartisan Policy Center believes are reasonable and should be considered by this White House, or are you not taking a stand no. there? Well, uh, I'll probably take my own stand on this. Uh, okay, great. But on my own stand on this, yes, there are things that the Speaker McCarthy has put on the table. First of all, I think the unexpended obligations, uh, balances that he's talking about that are not out, that have not been obligated, have not been made available, um, monies that basically have been st- that are still available uh, uh, and have not been obligated under the pandemic. Uh, those should, if we're not going to spend them, bring it back, uh, bring that money back. I will now go off and probably on my own here a little bit, but Having more, in all fairness, I worked yeah. for Republicans in all those years up there. Um, the president has put forth a budget and at uh, back in March, and the speaker has put forth a budget. And uh, the one area where there, there there really are opportunities for discussion is what we call the discretionary portion of the budget, and specifically the non-defense discretionary budget. Yep. And, and if I compare the two numbers, the president's request for uh, for fiscal year 24, the one begins in October, is about $700 billion for what we call non-defense discretionary. Mm-hmm. And for and if and McCarthy's budget, if he goes back, he says, I want to be at the 22 level, that number is about 600. That's a $100 billion difference. Wow. Now, I know it's a lot of money, but in the old days, give me a break, we'd split the difference. Huh. Surely, surely we can find $50 billion yes, out right. of out of out of a uh, of a budget, and by the way, that we can, that that what I just ra- raised was did not include this defense spending. But uh, there are things w- that we can streamline, tighten up um, in the spending side. And I do think that at the end of the day, uh, we're going to come down to that's going since Medicare's mm-hmm. off the table, Social Security's off the table, taxes are off the table. Uh, I don't think Republicans in the House will want to have a defense number that's lower than the president's request. So it does come down to that. Basically, um, 15% of the all federal spending is to find that, uh, find some money in there uh, in the non-defense discretionary. And I think that's where uh, uh, the uh, sweet spot lies if we can find, uh, sit down and have some serious negotiations, discussions yes. around the provokes. We're done. Bill Hoagland, live on the air, just figured it out. And you guys have been <laughs> wasting all this time. Bill, I hope we don't get you fired uh, having you opine like that, but I really appreciate the analysis. Bill Hoagland, just across the street from us here at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Bill, thank you for the insights as we play it to the panel. It's a big day to have our signature panel with us, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. With the couple of moments that we have, we'll just take a first swing and we'll take a deep dive coming up here. Jeannie, uh, as Bill mentioned, he's, of course, a longtime Republican. He He's also making some sense there, isn't he? He absolutely is. While you were conversing, I was thinking we need people like Bill Hoagland in this room today no saying, come on, let's get the adults out. Let's compromise. Let's not take things off the table. Let's talk about that 15 percent he was just talking about. Yeah. Let's meet in the middle and we're good to go. It, it makes so much sense. And when Bill says it, it sounds so simple. And yet I fear to your point, <laughs> it may not be so simple today. Well, I guess that's right. Uh, Rick Davis, you're going to, I assume, agree uh, with Bill here uh, a bit, but my goodness, that to, if we're talking about averting an economic catastrophe, uh, he did make that sound pretty easy, didn't he? That that seems like something that might be palatable to both sides. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, Jeannie's right. We want Bill in that room to cut a deal. He sounds like <laughs> he's in deal mode. But uh, the reality is that even if you dial it back to what the House GOP is talking about as far as budget cuts, you know, in the 150, 130 billion dollar range, it's actually not inconsistent with the balance between the Biden budget and the and the McCarthy budget on these non-defense discretionary spending. So, I, th- when you take a step back and you try and get out of the the, the pressure of the deadline, the uh, two sides are actually not that far apart when it comes to uh, trying to find a a budget deal. The problem is this is n- not technically a budget discussion. 
the discussion around the debt ceiling and, and Biden has been unwilling right. to engage on any further conversations. We're going to talk a lot more with Rick and Jeannie about this as Kevin McCarthy now reportedly says, no short term deal for me. We are not hiking or suspending the debt ceiling until September 30. So what then? That's why we have our signature panel and a lot of smart minds to help us through this on The Fastest Show in Politics. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. This is really interesting. We began the show with a breaking news headline. It was from Reuters. Kevin McCarthy opposes lifting the U.S. debt limit through September 30, so doesn't want a short-term deal. Now we hear from the White House. Guess what? We don't want that either. Headline on the terminal, White House, short-term debt limit extension, not our plan. So what is the plan? Rick and Jeannie are with us, our signature panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics Contributors. Uh, Rick, this back and forth before they even get in the room, in real time here in the media, is is not going to make this easier, is it? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it seems like we've now taken one of the issues off the table, which is a short term <laughs> extension. <laughs> and they both agreed to it in a public fashion rather than sitting around the table and having this conversation. But this one upsmanship, which is what today represents, yeah. uh, is not a, a healthy thing when it comes to trying to get a deal on, on on the debt ceiling. So we need to get these guys in the room and we need to have a thoughtful conversation and get those staff working on a hammering out a compromise position. This doesn't make anyone feel better though does it genie i mean the, the short-term solution was at least something we could hold on to to say hey all right at least we're not going to default you know there is a chance they could buy more time uh they just made made their lives more difficult didn't they they did and, and you know it's it's mind-numbing because the conversation you were just having with rick you know we know they're not too far apart on the budget but unfortunately they're not talking about budget today then you listen to the white house yesterday kareen john pierre says oh but we're not meeting about the debt ceiling negotiations so even what they're meeting about doesn't seem to be clear today except they've all you know sort of put their head down and said this is our position and yet you listen and they seem to agree on more than they disagree. Everyone wants to raise the debt ceiling. Nobody wants a short-term solution. And still they can't come to the middle. So when people say that don't have high expectations of this meeting, I think that is <laughs> the, the reality here. And the other part is you hope the meeting doesn't devolve into some kind of, you know, fist fight or something. Because at this point, I don't know what they're <laughs> going to talk about except, you know, talking about their intractable positions. Yeah, right. Well, look. Rick, you've been in rooms like this before. This is going to be in the Oval, at least to start. I figure the president could bring them somewhere else if he wanted to. Uh, you've got the big four there. I, what's the scene here? They're on the couches. They start with uh, maybe a beverage or I don't know if he's got the snacks out. Like, is there small talk? How's this going to start? Yeah, I would actually be surprised if they're in the Oval Office. They probably go in the cabinet room where there's some distance in case things get hot. Uh, <laughs> it's built uh, for the Oval, by the way, and there will be a pool spray in there, but then they could always move, I suppose, right? Well, that's a friendly gesture by the president because uh, uh, the business usually gets hammered out in the, in the in the cabinet room or in the Roosevelt room. And then when you got something positive to say, you come into the Oval Office. But let's hope that that's an indication that this administration is ready to sort of deal because as you said earlier it does seem that the public posture on both sides is 
why are we even meeting if we're not going to get a deal done? Yeah. I would say that the uh, both of them sort of taking this pact not to do a short-term deal actually does add pressure to get a deal done. You know, anytime you let the air out of the tire and you say, oh, well, we'll just kick this down the road till the end of September, then we go a long way, uh, you know, between now and then of, again, just posturing and not getting anything done. And the reality is one of the things that could come out of this is a budget deal uh, if they can come up with a number that they can agree on for these non-defense uh, discretionary cuts. And then we can get on with actually passing a budget in addition to having a debt ceiling. So this actually could result in a real positive when it comes to the fiscal health of our government. Are we going to hear from all the presidential candidates on this, Jeannie? I figure Donald Trump will be truthing at some point around five o'clock Eastern time. Yeah, I, I think he'll be truthing. I will be watching for you, Joe. Yeah, um, you I think it's going to depend on a little bit, a little bit about whether they get a, 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 you know, the jury comes back in this trial here in New York on the rape charge, but that might depend. Um, but I do think we're going to hear from all of them. And you know, another wrinkle in this whole thing is we've got this union of the National Association of Government Employees who filed a lawsuit yesterday against Treasury Secretary Yellen and the president saying they can't comply with the law, that the law itself itself is unconstitutional and violates the 14th Amendment. And now I know the White House has sort of stepped back from that 14th Amendment argument, but that would be an out for the president and for the Treasury to say, hey, we can't comply with the debt ceiling because it itself is unconstitutional. I don't know how quickly that would move through the courts. I doubt it would move quickly, but it's another whole aspect of this story. Boy, I'll tell you, yes. Uh, is, is the president keeping in reserve, you know, the 14th Amendment, the trillion dollar coin, or is that just fun uh, talk for radio shows, Rick? Yeah, I think that's fun talk for radio shows. Um, I, I love the concept of a trillion dollar coin, right? But <laughs> what um, it, it's, it's, it's never been invoked. These are extra, you know, sort of constitutional arguments. Sure, the Constitution says the validity of public death should not be questioned. That does not in itself necessarily mean we can blow through the, 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 the debt ceiling. And and even if it did mean that and the president did it, what would markets react to? Right. I mean, like, mm. is anybody going to agree with that? And so it's way too dangerous a, uh, a tactic to employ. They need to get a deal done. And even talking about these other options doesn't it, we want heat on this meeting today. We want them to be forced to make a deal because obviously on their own, they don't seem to be able to get it done. Unbelievable. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano here on Bloomberg Sound On. Uh, we've got one more uh, log to throw on the fire here, and I don't know if you guys are watching this unfold on your terminals, but an urgent from the Associated Press. Jury in New York City has begun deliberating in the lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll. I believe uh, Jeannie was referring to this, of course, alleging that Donald Trump raped her in 1996. We could actually get a verdict in this case today. Uh, if deliberations are underway, they, it, it could come at any point, actually. Uh, Jeannie, this would be just another ridiculous story to add to uh, to a very busy week here and a ridiculous week. But I wonder if it moves the needle at all on Donald Trump's credibility following the polling data we saw over the weekend. It's a slam dunk for him, according to ABC News, Washington Post, when it comes to this nomination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I have some qualms about that poll, mm -hmm. although it's not good sign for the president. But, you know, it's hard to tell at this point what moves the needle with Donald Trump. But I do agree with Chris Christie when he says there is nothing positive about being charged with rape. Now, we don't know whether the jury will find him liable. This is obviously not a criminal trial. So liable or not for 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 this this action that he's uh, accused of, of having engaged in so many years ago. But the, the former president did not come to testify the depositions which i know you've heard were you know pretty startling when you hear what he did say and so without him there it's hard to say what the jury's going to come out with here but they uh you know have probably i think it's six men and the rest are women they probably are going to come i think today or tomorrow back because they didn't have the president's testimony except for the deposition to contend with yeah that deposition i don't know how that helps anyone uh other than E. Jean Carroll, this is uh, the, the moment when he's asked about the Access Hollywood tape that, of course, we all remember from the 16 campaign. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. This is the lawyer reading kiss. this quote. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the 
Well, that's what it's if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. What's about to happen here, Rick? I, I could I could go on and on about this. I cannot believe you gave me 30 seconds on that quote. <laughs> Look, I mean, this is just one of the many legal dilemmas Donald Trump has that will frame his election uh, uh, effort. Well, there it is. That was very efficient. You could take another 30. I just find this amazing that this uh, this is what the, the Trump team is is allowing to be, you know, the record. Uh, I suppose well, you could, I mean, anything could happen if he's testifying. Joe, it's really not their choice. This is the thing about uh, legal cases. It's he loses control of his own narrative. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington along with Kaylee Lines. Kaylee, uh, you're just out of crypto land on uh, Bloomberg TV. And by that, of course, I mean the crypto show. As you're talking to a member of Congress there, the yeah. debt ceiling still came up even on the crypto show, didn't well, it? Well, especially on a day like today, you got to yeah. ask, right? right? And I was speaking with the Democratic congressman from California, Brad Sherman, uh, who we know is no fan of crypto. But I was wondering if he was a fan of the way the administration has approached this entire entire conversation around the debt ceiling. And I asked him, what would constitute an optimal outcome for your party today? Would it be that the president doesn't budge or that he does and we get closer to resolving this thing? He basically said the scenario he wants is a clean debt ceiling raise and then to negotiate the budget. So basically the party line still, even as we are now just hours away from this meeting, it doesn't seem, Joe, that much in terms of attitude has really changed. Right. So you've got Kevin McCarthy uh, saying no short-term, short-term deal uh, to yeah. Reuters. Then the White House responds uh, to Bloomberg saying, we never had that plan anyway. Well, my question of, is, what is the plan? Right. Then? A lot of people are asking them, did you, did you have a plan? And I wonder, you know, we had a great conversation last hour with Bill Hoagland. He solved the whole thing, you know, by the way. You were you were mm. talking crypto. He actually solved the entire crisis in a 10 minute conversation. It was brilliant. If only he were in the room. And basically <laughs> what he said, by the way, is you take the number here. Take a look at the two top line budget numbers that came from Joe mm. Biden's proposal. This is, you know, the the the, the discretionary spending levels and what yep. was passed in the House. They're about one hundred billion dollars apart. So cut it in half. Fifty billion. You got a deal. Everyone go home. Let's not have a catastrophe. Well, I guess it becomes a question of how they get to those figures, right, Joe? Because what actually makes up those spending cuts could be very different depending on which blueprint you are looking at. Mm -hmm. I suspect Lonnie Chen has an idea on this. Spent a lot of time uh, in the public policy circle, served as senior advisor on policy, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, policy director of the Republican. Romney Ryan campaign. He was Governor Mitt Romney's chief policy advisor, California state controller. That's Lonnie Chen. It's great to have you back on Bloomberg Radio, Lonnie. Uh, I'm guessing that you could probably help figure this out pretty quickly as well. Why is it so easy for some and so difficult uh, for the politicians on both sides of this right now? Well, I, th- I think because because they're in politics, and I think that makes it extraordinarily <laughs> challenging because the the reality is that. The substance is very easy to figure out, uh, you know, I think in terms of where the two sides would like to get. And I don't actually think that they fundamentally disagree on, for example, uh, the need for there to be some uh, addressing of the deficit and spending concerns. I, I don't think they disagree on the need to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, but I think where they do disagree is on the on the politics. And I think each side has their own perspective of what makes for good politics. And at this point, at least. It behooves both the Biden White House as well as the speaker and congressional Republicans to appear as though they're not capitulating to what the other side wants. And unfortunately, that's going to drag this standoff out for a few more weeks. And then as we get perilously close to the X date, whether it's June 1st or a few days beyond that, uh, you know, then people will really come to the table and figure out what they need to do. But until then, it's going to be fundamentally a battle of political posturing rather than sort of substantive problem solving. So, Lonnie, is that another way of saying nothing's going to change after this meeting because they still have weeks left that they, that they can posture? Yeah, I would not expect 
a whole lot of anything to come out of this meeting. I am curious to see what the tone will be in some of the reports after the meeting. If you think back to the initial Biden-McCarthy meeting, which happened, I guess, now several weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, the tone out of that was actually surprisingly conciliatory. I thought. It was. You're you actually right. Had, you actually had both the Biden White House and the McCarthy team saying, you know, look, we, we don't have an agreement, but we agree that we need to talk and we need to have a conversation. Now, of course, in the intervening weeks, we've seen the House Republicans pass their own proposal. And so the, the conditions are a little bit different now than they were when everything was a blank slate. That having been said, it is useful for observers to look at what comes out of this meeting in terms of the tone of the report. I wouldn't mm-hmm. expect too much in terms of substantive uh, agreement, but I do think we can read some tea leaves out of the meeting in terms of how the two sides report it went. Yeah, right. So it was February 1st. Uh, right when they first sat down and Kevin McCarthy came out in the driveway, Lonnie had pretty good things to say. So, you know, we we've agreed to move forward. He said he was optimistic. Does he need to project similar optimism uh, so the market doesn't take a dump tomorrow morning at 930? <laughs> is that is that the technical term? Yeah, it is now. <laughs> I mean, I, Some might call I it think, puking. I think, right. I think uh, both sides, to the extent that they release statements, need to uh, express some measure of optimism about what the path forward looks like. They don't need to come to an agreement. I don't think anybody expects that to be the case. But I think if the two sides come out and they report, you know, listen, we're not, we're just not going to talk again uh, for a while, or, you know, we have nothing to talk about. I think there's reason for markets to be a little more rattled if, if that happens. But again, I think what is more likely than not is that they're going to say, listen, we're going to continue this conversation they're going to talk about areas where there are common ground, and but also areas where there are disagreement. So, you know, in an ordinary day and age, you would say, well, they're not going to say very much. But I actually think even that is a sign of some progress, the fact that the two sides are willing to express that there are still hmm. things to talk about, things to negotiate on, and areas of potential agreement that could get us out of this impasse. Well, we talked about kind of how McCarthy messaged this in the prior meeting, there's also the question of the messaging for the White House, especially given, Lonnie, that, as Joe said, you've advised a number of presidential campaigns. We have to keep in mind that President Biden is sitting in on these conversations, not just as the current president, but also a current candidate who is seeking reelection in 2024. So he has to think about how this plays into general election politics. If it gets too close, if something were to happen on his watch, how could this ultimately affect what happens next November? I just wonder how that influences uh, who blinks first. Yeah, it, that's a great question, Kaylee. I mean, I think the in in the politics of 10 years ago, I would have said, you know, there, there is an influence. Uh, this is something that voters are going to remember. But with how quickly our political cycles turn over now and how mm. much news develops on a daily basis, I'm somewhat skeptical that this is going to have repercussions for either side. Uh, just because, you know, we're, we're having this conversation in June, July of 2023, and the election is well over a year away. I mean, that's a lifetime from now in terms of political cycles. I mean, the former president could be indicted six times between now and then. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen, right? So. The, the reality is that there will be immediate political effects, regardless of what the outcome is. I am more skeptical that there will be long-term effects on the president's electoral chances. Fundamentally, I think the president's electoral chances in terms of re-election will be influenced by the state of the economy. When we get to next fall, it will be influenced by who the Republican nominee ends up being, a, a whole bunch of different factors. It, and the debt ceiling may have some impact on that, but fundamentally, in terms of the back and forth, I'm a little more skeptical that that's going to have a massive impact on the electoral outcome next year. You maybe go back and find it here, Lonnie. This is it was actually the second of February, and the big meeting inside the Oval Office. Kevin McCarthy comes out in the driveway after it's all done. We have different perspectives, but we both laid out some of our vision of where we'd want to get to. And I believe after laying both about, I can see where we can find common ground. We could find common ground. I haven't heard a statement like that since that meeting. I think, Lonnie, you just wonder what happens when people, when human beings get into a room, right? We're not anonymous on the web here. It's not a road rage incident any longer. You're eye to eye with someone, and that's when things tend right. to happen. Right. And, and and neither the president nor the speaker are unlikable people. You know, when you get them into into a room one on one, I think they're they're both very affable in their own ways. So, 
it, it is the case that these interpersonal relationships are very different. And, and by the way, Biden and McCarthy don't have much of a personal relationship. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's been well reported and well known. But I do think that they're both fundamentally, uh, you know, very politically savvy and they understand that each side needs to be able to get something out of this. So, again, I think what we ought to look for in after the meeting that they have here uh, you know, coming up, what we really ought to look for is what is the tone? Is, the, is the, the tone a similar kind of, listen, there are still areas where you potentially could agree? That's a very hopeful sign, in my view, even if they don't reach an agreement now or for a few weeks. The fact that they're willing to, to admit that there are areas of commonality and opportunities for common ground and, and mm. a potential agreement, I think is a very hopeful thing. Well, when we talk about what potential agreement would look like, what ultimately would compose a deal. We know that Republicans want there to be at least some spending cuts. So while we've talked at length, Lonnie, about what the economic ramifications would be if there was no deal reached, we also have to ask the question of what the economic ramifications will be if there is one and if spending cuts come with it. Lisa Shallot, who is the CIO of Wealth Management over at Morgan Stanley, was on Bloomberg TV earlier, and she was saying this ultimately matters to growth. Listen to what she said. What's cut? Are there rollbacks of some of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act Act um, spending related uh, opportunities, some of the infrastructure spending uh, that is kind of in motion? And those things have been a support to growth. Uh, and if we need to you know, take that out of the forward forecasts, uh, that is going to dampen uh, economic growth. And of course, Lonnie, this also comes at a time when already the growth is in question and we're talking about recessionary risks. So is now really the time to be cutting spending? Well, I, I don't think that some of the uh, more dire scenarios, for example, around rollbacks of Inflation Reduction Act provisions is likely. I think the president recognizes that this was a, a one of his signature pieces of, of, a, of legislative accomplishment, he's not going to want to erode those elements. So that that I'm less uh, would be less concerned about. I, I do think that it is exceedingly hard to see the Democrats in Congress and President Biden agreeing to any real spending cuts at this time. Uh, I think what is more likely to come out of it is either a set of of uh, of cuts that are. Uh, cuts, maybe cuts in name only or cuts dressed as something else, or the, the, the more likely outcome, as I see it, is some form of commission to study what needs to be cut. And, and I recognize that a lot of Republicans are saying that that's insufficient. They're saying that now. But when you wait for a couple of weeks, the dynamic is going to change as we get closer and closer to the actual. He still uh, loses the Freedom Caucus in that world, though, right? And, and, and that might be OK, Lonnie. I mean, he's, he's going to need some Democrats. It sounds like to pass the legislation or, or the, the framework that you're talking about. So is his greater worry right now the Republican House caucus or, or whether this gets a couple Democrats and somehow gets through the Senate? Well, I don't think that uh, he that any congressional Republican leadership will allow for the possibility at this point that it passes with basically because of Democrat votes. But the reality is when push comes to shove, that, that that's a decision I think that Speaker McCarthy may have to make which is essentially, you know, how how much political capital is he willing to expend to ensure that this agreement gets through? Because I do think that there's an agreement on a set of of principles and ideas that can pass both the House and the Senate. I I do think it's there. Uh, But it's really a question of, of, you know, what the political pain is going to be and how much pain is going to be extracted. And will that include, for example, Speaker McCarthy no longer being Speaker? Well, I was uh, you know, I, I was just about to ask, is is the choice getting it through or keeping the job? Oof. I mean, it's a brutal choice, but you can see a scenario where that does end up coming coming into into focus. Um, I think that fundamentally right now, the two sides need to agree on uh, kind of what their red lines are. And uh, they don't have to agree publicly. They just have to understand internally what those red lines are. And and then they can negotiate up up, up to that. But it's. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a position no politician ever wants to be in. But I, I, I do believe that fundamentally I, I do take the speaker at his word when he says he doesn't want to see a default. And I and I think he is sincere and honest about that. We've had a few uh, headlines cross since uh, we've been on the air for for an hour and change here, Lonnie, including both sides saying no to a short term deal. And now Punchbowl reports that uh, Kevin McCarthy says a debt deal is needed in principle. And that could mean a lot of different things by next week. You don't actually think that's possible, or do you? 
Well, the, the fact that he's saying that, that they've got to have an architecture in place means that he, he feels he needs some time to sell it to his members. That's what that tells me. Um, with, with, with respect to the issue of no short-term deal, I mean, everyone's going to say that, right? No one's going to come out and say, yeah, we're going to do the short-term deal because then that's the obvious pathway that everyone will go to and, and, and it, will, it, it, it doesn't allow each side to retain any political leverage if, if they immediately go to short-term deal. Mm-hmm. I, I still tend to think that's the most likely and immediate outcome which is that we punt this down the road for yeah. three months, six months, whatever the case might be. It's just, despite, that's just the easiest option. Despite the pre-buttle uh, statements here. Uh, right. What a perfect voice for today. Lonnie, I really appreciate your coming back to talk to us. Lonnie Chen, senior fellow of the Hoover Institution. He also is with Stanford Law, where he's a lecturer. Uh, Kaylee, we're only doing grown-ups today. Only grown-up <laughs> voices, voices of reason mm-hmm. in the middle of all the madness. A lot of noise out there. How much noise, though, will we be hearing from the White House outside the Oval Office when this meeting wraps up at some point today, Joe. I'm deeply curious. I wonder who says what and when. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. So President Biden heads into today's debt ceiling meeting at the White House with his approval rating, as we've discussed, at an historic low in the latest ABC News Washington Post poll. Remember the number? It was 36 percent. Not good, Kaylee Lines, Mm -mm. for this uh, president two weeks into a reelection campaign, obviously. Uh, But maybe, you know, he could find solace in this uh, new poll from Gallup because it looks like Jay Powell is not doing any better. This new poll released Today, you might have bumped into in your tip sheets this morning, shows 36% yes to the penny of U.S. adults say they have a great deal or a fair amount of confidence in the chair of the Federal Reserve. Recommend the right thing for the economy. Mm. Janet Yellen at 37%. Yeah, so at that 36%, that is the lowest public confidence we have seen for any Fed chair on record, which is probably not a superlative that you'd like to have attached uh, to your name. But he still is doing better on the economic front, it seems, in this poll than Joe Biden, because President Joe Biden only has the confidence of 35 percent of Americans on the economy specifically. So Kaylee uh, introduced our our audience to Mohammed Yunus, the editor in chief at Gallup on Balance of Power TV last week. And he's with us in studio right now. Uh, Mohammed, it's wonderful to see you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. So uh, this is quite uh, Quite the number here, 36% for Jay Powell. How much does he have the president to thank for that? Well, I mean, you know, the big difference between him and President Biden is he doesn't need to face voters in an election. That's right. So comparing those two numbers, I think, is a little unfair, okay. maybe to both men <laughs> on many levels. One of the things um, that really is notable about his approval rating or really confidence rating from the public is it used to be really high. He was at 60% at the height of the federal government's attempt to deal with the shutdown. Um, So you're looking at a leader who actually, um, as you pointed, I think, out, Kaylee, last week, you know, was appointed by the opposing party, Mm -hmm. um, had really high ratings from the public, 60%. I mean, I can't remember the last time a federal government leader had that level of he was uh, seen as a, as a trusted voice in a time of crisis for sure. And now, and now he finds himself um, at 36. But again, it's important to keep in mind the context. Do Americans wake up thinking about Chairman Powell every night, every day? No, absolutely not. What they do think about though is inflation, 
And we have basically half of America now saying the most important financial problem their family faces is either high costs of living or making the rent or paying their mortgage. So those are the kind of the only two things Main Street um, deals with that really triggers to our public consciousness the chairman, the chairman of the Federal Reserve or the Federal Reserve in general. Yeah. And of course, maybe freshly on the minds of Americans as well as whether or not their deposits are safe in the U.S. banking system. And I know Gallup did some work on that as well. Mm -hmm. Americans don't generally feel that confident uh, in their deposits being secure uh, at the moment. So that may factor into this, too, because you did conduct this survey after the failures of SVB and Signature. It was pre-First Republic. It was done in April, but still that likely was coloring what people were saying here. As we talk about kind of the breakdown, though, of the people surveyed, you mentioned that this was a Republican appointee, Chairman Powell was. Is it Republicans that don't have faith in him or Democrats? What does that breakdown look like? What's really interesting is right now he has a lot more confidence from Democrats than Republicans. Um, but at the same time, when you think about how much of a presence he's had in standing side by side with the president mm. and being really a champion of the message they're sending to both the market and voters, um, it's not a surprise that those who support President Biden are going to support you know, the top officials he's relying on to address the, the issue. Um, but it is important to note that, and I want to say this because of your listeners' focus, of course, on finance and the economy, perceptions of the economy in the United States are really metrics that used to be extremely useful for us in gauging how well the economy was actually doing in the real world. Mm. They've become horrible metrics for doing that now. And it's because a lot of people's responses around the economy tend to go the way of their political ID. So if I support the president, I think it's more likely to say the economy is doing well. If I don't support the president or he's not from my party, I'm more likely to say the economy is not doing so well. And here, I think, is one of those places with Jerome Powell where, again, folks are showing sort of their partisan lean um, mm -hmm. in who, whether or not they approve of, of the actor. Which is really interesting because, you know, he's got the confidence, uh, as you find, of 60 percent of Democrats and only 21 percent of Republicans, even though he was, to Kaylee's point, appointed <laughs> by a Republican president and is, in fact, himself a Republican, right? Isn't Jay Powell – have an R after his name? I, I do. I do believe so. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the other thing to think about really is who's not a Democrat and Republican and how they feel. Um, independents, mm -hmm. of course, are also not high on confidence on either really of the uh, sides of the aisle or sides of town in terms of dealing with the economic crisis. But a good percent of independents are really lacking confidence in any of these leaders, mm -hmm. including Jerome Powell. And I think it's. As we move into this kind of Trump back into the mix, Republicans still not sure what to do about it. It's really important for us to watch how independents feel um, about everything the nation's uh, dealing with, but particularly the the debt uh, ceiling limit. I also want to mention just something as you know, I know you guys were talking about that before the break. It's really important to keep in mind that this is also a leadership across the board um, that is primarily coming from a Congress that has a really low approval rating. So right mm -hmm. now, 16% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. Is so and low. I hear you guys laughing. <laughs> and it used to be funny. But when you think about what's happening in the market yeah. um, and really how little confidence our public voter, just man and woman on the street, have in these very powerful figures mm -hmm. to make the right decisions for the economy, um, it's not surprising that the number one – most stated, most important problem by the public is poor government and poor leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also not surprising that this happens at a time when we see a decline in confidence in institutions across the board, really at the national level. I think it's so interesting, Joe, to think about how this ultimately shows up in the voting booth, mm -hmm. right? The idea is always that it's the economy, stupid. This is really what <laughs> what people vote on. Judging from what you're saying, Mohammed, it would suggest that this just means that we switched parties that are in charge, right? We didn't necessarily, though, see that play out in the way we thought it would in the midterms in 2022. The Democrats did hold on to the Senate. So how should we be thinking about this with an eye on 2024? Does this suggest that things are tracking away from the Democratic Party or could enough change in the interim that things look totally different by then? Definitely the latter um, would be my bet. There's so much time between where we sit right now and, you know, voting. Um, and it really is going to come down to that. There's so much that could potentially happen to completely 
side rail a presidency, first and foremost, the economy. Um, we all, you know, you all were covering um, Trump's presidency and mm-hmm. attempt to be reelected. There was a time when the economy looked really strong mm-hmm. under President Trump. Um, and who would have guessed that a lockdown would have completely wiped that out and drove us into the red um, and made, a, made it a very uphill battle. Right now, President Biden faces um, a considerable uphill battle. Only President Reagan had an approval rating that was this low at this point in his presidency. Um, so he really does re-engage uh, the, the American voter from a very weak standing point. In terms of on the economy itself, which historically, as you mentioned, Kaylee, continues to be the most important issue for voters, he only rates um, – the only president who rates lower than him right now on handling the economy is George W. Bush in 2008. <laughs> so it's really – he's really at the bottom. That's about as low as you go. Exactly. Considering where we're in our lifetime, right? In our lifetime, when you think about kind of our spectrum of what's good and bad, um, the economy is absolutely going to be critical. Mm -hmm. Americans uh, views on the economy are going to be critical, but also how the economy I think is changing is going to be really important. Um, I saw your colleague, uh, Lisa this morning, uh, Lisa Bromowitz Mm. um, posting about small businesses in the U S and the startup graph just is, depressing. It's like on the way down. Um, And when you think about how Americans actually find jobs and how America creates jobs, the more of those kind of foundational changes taking place and how the public reacts to them are going to play a fundamental role in who they vote for. It's a bit of a clinic with Muhammad Yunus. Thank you so much for coming in. It's wonderful to see you. The editor-in-chief at Gallup, and I'd love to have you back to talk about uh, what our listeners should be looking for and, and how they should sort of focus their attention on polls as we get further into this election cycle. A lot of skeptics out there. We'd love to tap your brain on that. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.